0: This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Seas by Jules Verne. First part, Chapter Sixteen Strolling the Plains. This cell, properly speaking, was the Nautilus's arsenal and wardrobe. Hanging from its walls, a dozen diving outfits were waiting for anybody who wanted to take a stroll. After seeing these, Ned Land exhibited an obvious distaste for the idea of putting one on. "'But, my gallant Ned,' I told him, "'the forests of Crespo Island are simply underwater forests.' "'Oh, great!' put in the disappointed harpooner, watching his dreams of fresh meat fade away." "'And you, Professor Aranax, are you going to stick yourself inside these clothes?' "'It has to be, Mr. Ned.' "'Have it your way, sir,' the harpooner replied, shrugging his shoulders. "'But speaking for myself, I'll never get into those things unless they force me.' "'No one will force you, Mr. Land,' Captain Nemo said. "'And is Conseil going to risk it?' Ned asked. "'Where Master goes, I go.' "'Kinseya replied. "'At the captain's summons, two crewmen came to help us put on these heavy, waterproof clothes, made from seamless India rubber, and expressly designed to bear considerable pressures. They were like suits of armor that were both yielding and resistant, you might say. These clothes consisted of jacket and pants. The pants ended in bulky footwear adorned with heavy lead soles. The fabric of the jacket was reinforced with copper mail that shielded the chest, protected it from the water's pressure, and allowed the lungs to function freely. The sleeves ended in supple gloves that didn't impede hand movements. These perfected diving suits, it was easy to see, were a far cry from such misshapen costumes as the cork breastplates, leather jumpers, seagoing tunics, barrel-helmets, etc., invented and acclaimed in the eighteenth century. Conseil and I were soon dressed in these diving-suits, as were Captain Nemo and one of his companions, an Herculean type who must have been prodigiously strong. All that remained was to encase one's head in its metal sphere. But before proceeding with this operation, I asked the captain for permission to examine the rifles set aside for us one of the nautilus's men presented me with a stream-lined rifle whose butt was boilerplate steel hollow inside and of fairly large dimensions this served as a tank for the compressed air which a trigger-operated valve could release into the metal chamber in a groove where the butt was heaviest a cartridge clip held some twenty electric bullets that by means of a spring automatically took their places in the barrel of the rifle. As soon as one shot had been fired, another was ready to go off. Captain Nemo, I said, this is an ideal, easy-to-use weapon. I ask only to put it to the test. But how will we reach the bottom of the sea? Right now, Professor, the Nautilus is aground in ten meters of water, and we've only to depart. But how will we set out? You'll see. Captain Nemo inserted his cranium into its spherical headgear. Conseil and I did the same, but not without hearing the Canadian toss us a sarcastic Happy hunting! On top, the suit ended in a collar of threaded copper onto which the metal helmet was screwed. Three holes, protected by heavy glass, allowed us to see in any direction with simply a turn of the head inside the sphere. PLACED ON OUR BACKS, THE ROLL-CRAY-ROLL DEVICE WENT INTO OPERATION AS SOON AS IT WAS IN POSITION, AND FOR MY PART I COULD BREATHE WITH EASE. THE rum LAMP HANGING FROM MY BELT, MY RIFLE IN HAND, I WAS READY TO GO FORTH. BUT, IN ALL HONESTY, WHILE IMPRISONED IN THESE HEAVY CLOTHES AND NAILED TO THE DECK BY MY lead SOLES, IT WAS IMPOSSIBLE FOR ME TO TAKE A SINGLE STEP. But this circumstance had been foreseen, because I felt myself propelled into a little room adjoining the wardrobe. Towed in the same way, my companions went with me. I heard a door with watertight seals close after us, and we were surrounded by profound darkness. After some minutes, a sharp hissing reached my ears. I felt a distinct sensation of cold rising from my feet to my chest. Apparently, a stopcock inside the boat was letting in water from outside, which overran us, and soon filled up the room. Contrived in the Nautilus's side, a second door then opened. We were lit by subdued light. An instant later, our feet were treading the bottom of the sea. And now, how can I convey the impressions left on me by this stroll under the waters? Words are powerless to describe such wonders. When even the painter's brush can't depict the effects unique to the liquid element, how can the writer's pen hope to reproduce them? Captain Nemo walked in front, and his companion followed us a few steps to the rear. Conseil and I stayed next to each other, as if daydreaming that through our metal carapaces a little polite conversation might still be possible already i no longer felt the bulkiness of my clothes footwear an air tank nor the weight of the heavy sphere inside which my head was rattling like an almond in its shell once immersed in water all these objects lost a part of their weight equal to the weight of the liquid they displaced and thanks to this law of physics discovered by archimedes i did just fine i was no longer an inert mass and i had comparatively speaking great freedom of movement lighting up the sea floor even thirty feet beneath the surface of the ocean the sun astonished me with its power the solar rays easily crossed this aqueous mass and dispersed its dark colors i could easily distinguish objects a hundred meters away farther on the bottom was tinted with fine shades of ultramarine Then, off in the distance, it turned blue and faded in the midst of a hazy darkness. Truly, this water surrounding me was just a kind of air, denser than the atmosphere on land, but almost as transparent. Above me I could see the calm surface of the ocean. We were walking on sand that was fine-grained and smooth— not wrinkled like beach sand which preserves the impressions left by the waves this dazzling carpet was a real mirror throwing back the sun's rays with startling intensity the outcome an immense vista of reflections that penetrated every liquid molecule will any one believe me if i assert that at this thirty foot depth i could see as if it was broad daylight For a quarter of an hour I trod this blazing sand, which was strewn with tiny crumbs of seashell. Looming like a long reef, the Nautilus's hull disappeared little by little, but when night fell in the midst of the waters, the ship's beacon would surely facilitate our return on board, since its rays carried with perfect distinctness. THIS EFFECT IS DIFFICULT TO UNDERSTAND FOR ANYONE WHO HAS NEVER SEEN LIGHT BEAMS SO SHARPLY DEFINED ON SHORE. THERE THE DUST THAT SATURATES THE AIR GIVES SUCH RAYS THE APPEARANCE OF A LUMINOUS FOG, BUT ABOVE WATER AS WELL AS UNDER WATER, SHAFTS OF ELECTRIC LIGHT ARE TRANSMITTED WITH INCOMPARABLE CLARITY. MEANWHILE WE WENT EVER ONWARD, AND THESE VAST PLAINS OF SAND SEEMED ENDLESS. MY HANDS PARTED LIQUID CURTAINS THAT CLOSED AGAIN BEHIND ME, AND MY FOOTPRINTS FADED SWIFTLY UNDER THE WATER'S PRESSURE. SOON, SCARCELY BLURRED BY THEIR DISTANCE FROM US, THE FORMS OF SOME OBJECTS TOOK SHAPE BEFORE MY EYES. I RECOGNIZED THE LOWER SLOPES OF SOME MAGNIFICENT ROCKS CARPETED BY THE FINEST zoophyte SPECIMENS, AND RIGHT OFF I WAS STRUCK BY AN EFFECT UNIQUE TO THIS MEDIUM. By then, it was ten o'clock in the morning. The sun's rays hit the surface of the waves at a fairly oblique angle, decomposing by refraction, as though passing through a prism. And when this light came in contact with flowers, rocks, buds, seashells, and polyps, the edges of these objects were shaded with all seven hues of the solar spectrum. This riot of rainbow tints was a wonder a feast for the eyes a genuine kaleidoscope of red green yellow orange violet indigo and blue in short the whole palette of a color-happy painter if only i had been able to share with Conseil the intense sensations rising in my brain competing with him in exclamations of wonderment if only i had known like captain nemo and his companion HOW TO EXCHANGE THOUGHTS BY MEANS OF PREARRANGED SIGNALS. SO, FOR LACK OF ANYTHING BETTER, I TALKED TO MYSELF. I DECLAIMED, INSIDE THIS COPPER BOX THAT TOPPED MY HEAD, SPENDING MORE AIR ON EMPTY WORDS THAN WAS PERHAPS ADVISABLE. Conseil, LIKE ME, HAD STOPPED BEFORE THIS SPLENDID SIGHT. Obviously, in the presence of these zoophyte and mollusk specimens, the fine lad was classifying his head off. Polyps and echinoderms abounded on the seafloor. Various Isis coral, cornularian coral living in isolation, tufts of virginal genus Oculina, formerly known by the name white coral, prickly fungus coral in the shape of mushrooms, Sea anemone holding on by their muscular discs, providing a literal flower bed adorned by jellyfish from the genus Porpita, wearing collars of azure tentacles, and starfish that spangled the sand, including vein-like feather stars from the genus Astrophyton that were like fine lace embroidered by the hands of water nymphs. Their festoons swaying to the faint undulations caused by our walking, it filled me with real chagrin to crush underfoot the gleaming mollusk samples that littered the sea floor by the thousands: concentric comb shells, hammer shells, coquina sea shells that actually hop around, top shell snails, red helmet shells, angel wing conchs, sea hares and so many other exhibits from this inexhaustible ocean but we had to keep walking and we went forward while overhead there scudded schools of portuguese men of war that let their ultramarine tentacles drift in their wakes medusas whose milky white or dainty pink parasols were festooned with azure tassels and shaded us from the sun's rays plus jellyfish of the species pelagia panopyra that in the dark would have strewn our path with phosphorescent glimmers all these wonders i glimpsed in the space of a quarter of a mile barely pausing following captain nemo whose gestures kept beckoning me onward soon the nature of the seafloor changed The plains of sand were followed by a bed of that viscous slime Americans call ooze, which is composed exclusively of seashells rich in limestone or silica. Then we crossed a prairie of algae, open-sea plants that the waters hadn't yet torn loose, whose vegetation grew in wild profusion. Soft to the foot, these densely textured lawns would have rivalled the most luxuriant carpets woven by the hand of man but while this greenery was sprawling under our steps it didn't neglect us overhead the surface of the water was crisscrossed by a floating arbor of marine plants belonging to that superabundant algae family that numbers more than two thousand known species i saw long ribbons of fucus Drifting above me, some globular, others tubular. Laurentia, Cladostephas, with the slenderest foliage. Rodamenia palmata, resembling the fan shapes of cactus. I observed that green colored plants kept closer to the surface of the sea, while reds occupied a medium depth which left blacks and browns in charge of designing gardens and flower beds in the ocean's lower strata these algae are a genuine prodigy of creation one of the wonders of world flora this family produces both the biggest and smallest vegetables in the world because just as forty thousand near invisible buds have been counted in one five square millimeter space so also have fucus plants been gathered that were over five hundred meters long we had been gone from the nautilus for about an hour and a half it was almost noon i spotted this fact in the perpendicularity of the sun's rays which were no longer refracted the magic of these solar colors disappeared little by little with emerald and sapphire shades vanishing from our surroundings altogether we walked with steady steps that rang on the seafloor with astonishing intensity. The tiniest sounds were transmitted with a speed to which the ear is unaccustomed on shore. In fact, water is a better conductor of sound than air, and under the waves, noises carry four times as fast. Just then, the seafloor began to slope sharply downward. The light took on a uniform hue. We reached a depth of 100 meters, by which point we were undergoing a pressure of 10 atmospheres. But my diving clothes were built along such lines that I never suffered from this pressure. I felt only a certain tightness in the joints of my fingers, and even this discomfort soon disappeared. As for the exhaustion bound to accompany a two hour stroll in such unfamiliar trappings, it was nil helped by the water, my movements were executed with startling ease. Arriving at this three hundred foot depth, I still detected the sun's rays, but just barely. Their intense brilliance had been followed by a reddish twilight, a midpoint between day and night. But we could see well enough to find our way, and it still wasn't necessary to activate the Rumkorf device. Just then, Captain Nemo stopped. He waited until I joined him, then he pointed a finger at some dark masses outlined in the shadows a short distance away. It's the forest of Crespo Island, I thought, and I was not mistaken. End of chapter sixteen.